hi to somebody you might know. Introduce yourself and say hi. And uh, if there is a seat in between you guys, if everybody could move in, everybody, and we are setting up one more table in the back, okay? But everybody hear that? If, if there's a seat, if you don't mind moving in for those who are coming late and they can have those outer seats. So how awesome is this room? I love this. This is so cool. I was sitting out here in the, um, on the couch before there was anything out here a couple days ago thinking about when we walked through this the first time when it was the post office. You are rowdy tonight. And, uh, and how much God has done in a short amount of time. Amen. And let me ask you, how great is your God? I mean, anybody? Anybody got a shout out? Anybody like lose a diamond today? And uh, out of their wedding ring, uh, Donna Mills and, uh, oh, my guiles. Why did I say that? Where'd that come from? Is there, wasn't that an actress, Donna Mills? Donna Giles. So we're in staff meeting, and Donna, and her lip starts quivering. And somebody said, could we pray for Donna? And she looks down, and her whole diamond prong and all was missing out of her ring. And she hadn't, she said, I don't even know. I don't know when I looked at it last. And we just stopped and prayed this morning and staff meeting and then crawled around the floor and never found it, um, only to get a text from her a few hours later that she found it at home. And um, so that was cool, because it could have been anywhere. She walked the dog, she went to Target, she all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I love the fact that when we sing that, and, I, and part of what we're really trying to, to create, because sometimes some of us haven't grown up with learning how to to really close our eyes and meditate and worship and get ourselves really allowing the spirit to come in you before the pastor comes, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in this kind of environment, what you know John does when he leads us into worship is we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come. See, we have to get everything of the world out of us. Okay, everybody stay with me here. We gotta get everything out of us so the Holy Spirit can come in and speak and move. And our mind, as we just learned with the young girls in, in our mentoring, you know, we gotta keep our mind sober. Okay, that means not under the influence of anything but the Holy Spirit. So we, we praise, we worship, and what we do in staff meeting, every staff meeting we start with kingdom stories. And when you stop and you start meditating on kingdom stories, I mean, you should be reciting, oh my gosh, my church, it's unbelievable. People are being healed of cancer and marriages are being restored. Because the more that you prophetically say that, and it starts coming out of your mouth, the more you're going to see. One thing Pastor Phil has kind of coined, and I love it, miracles follow miracles. We say that around here. We started off with you can be in the middle of a miracle and not know it. And then we had so many miracles that we had to quit saying that because we know it. Amen? We just know it. The wall's full of miracles. And so we're just, we're asking, you know, we've prayed as a staff and we prayed as a couple that miracles will be so strong here that it's almost commonplace. I mean, we just expect them. And not that we don't rejoice with you when you tell us one. You know, we're so happy. Um, but, but we expect them. That's why we have expect a miracle everywhere around here. So I just want to tell one, I'll share one really quickly before Pastor Nathan comes and shares. But many of you know Phoebe Prosser, and um, her husband said, please quit using our name because people are going to think, what is wrong with those people, that they need so many miracles. But to remember, um, you know, Faith, their little girl had cancer, and we prayed for her. And then Phoebe had uh, the detached retina, and we prayed for her, and she was healed. And we've been praying for her mother now, babe, for what, a few months now, stage four lepnoma. And we've been praying for her, and, and Phoebe seriously just was hysterical. You know, some daughters are very close to their mothers, and she is one. And she took it really hard, I mean, to where she, she just couldn't stop crying. So anyway, we began praying, and on um, Saturday at the women's conference, she went up to buy one of the giving keys, and there were a couple keys, and one said faith, and one said believe. And she said, I was going to get faith because of my little daughter Faith, and then God said, I thought you were believing me for a miracle. And she said, in my spirit, God really said, faith is good. But I want you to believe me for a miracle. So she said she got the key that said believe. And she said she saw some numbers on the back, and she didn't pay too much attention. And she, and she got home, and on the back is 193. And her mother's birthday is January 9th. And this would be her third miracle if she believed. And so she called, um, she said, Tammy, I was just bawling. I'm looking at that, it was if God said, this is your faith, believe me, this is your faith, believe me. So she called yesterday, and um, the nurse, like, often is just like, you know, well, we don't have the results, she'll call back on Thursday, call, we told you to call, she said, I want to talk to the doctor now, persistence, 
It's in the Bible, Luke 11, all right? And so she said, I want to talk to the doctor. And the doctor called and said, Phoebe, I've not looked at any results yet. I don't even know if they're in. And she said, please, doctor, would you look? Now, we're talking stage four. Stage four. And the doctor said, Phoebe, I'll check after lunch. He came back. He called her after lunch. He said, Phoebe, I just got your mom's results. There is no trace of cancer in your mother. Now, you know, I'm going to... I want to end with this before Nathan comes. You know, a lot of times, somebody told me a story yesterday where they had a loved one who was given life and it was extended, and I don't know that they exercised faith. I want us to realize when God gives us a breath each day, it's a gift. And we have to enter into that spirit realm and learn to prophetically claim things, say things, decree things, declare things, speak things, right? We've got to move into that because God wants to do more of that. So I want us to learn to expect it, speak it, say it. So he, who needs a miracle in this room tonight? Who needs a miracle? I, just, I mean, some do, some don't, but who really needs a miracle tonight? And if you need one, you better raise your hand because God's going to say, well, you didn't say you did. Mm, changes things. And, um, they did that at IHOP and I didn't want to say anything because then somebody would come pray for me. And I thought, because it's my hip that I'm praying for. And I'm like, you know, I got my own hand, put my hand on my hip. And God said, raise your hand. And it's kind of embarrassing. Then people ask you, you know, and I said, well, I might need hip replacement. And then it's, oh, you're so young. You shouldn't, you know, you don't want to go into it. But it was as if God said, I want you to, to declare and decree that you want healing. You know, there's almost a sense of pride. And you're like, I don't want to tell people. I'm going to be a closet believer. I want to be a closet believer. I'm not going to tell anybody. Let me ask you, who needs a miracle tonight? Who needs it? Okay, pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, as Pastor Nathan comes to share with us and Pastor Phil, in Jesus' name, you see our hands, and these are declarations of faith. Father, we just saying how great is our God, how great is our God. Jehovah Jireh, you are our provider, and Jehovah Rapha, you are our healer, Jehovah God. We come to you, and right now, every hand that is lifted in Jesus' name, I want to pray over them. I pray that the Holy Spirit just come and give miracles tonight, Jesus. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Every mother, every father, every child, every boy, every girl that needs a miracle in Jesus' name, we come to you, the miracle giver. We thank you that by faith we are exercising and sowing the seed of faith tonight. Could that seed in Jesus' name sprout and bloom and come to fruition, Father, because of our faith. Lead us, guide us. You see our hands with declaration. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We really extend our faith to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. It is so good to be with you guys. And I know Tammy already said something about this room, but this is this is our room. This thing is amazing. Um, if you guys are over here by the the furnace, um, you'll learn shortly that you need uh, summer clothes to sit over there. And if you're over here, you need a jacket. If you're right in the middle, it's prime. Um, so just know that for the coming weeks. But hey, this is I mean, how cool is this though? Look at this place. And this is night one. It's going to get um, better, I'm sure, with more decor, and it's going to be even prettier. But um, as I said last week, I get to talk to you guys a little bit about community as we're starting up our small groups, our community groups that are going to be sermon-based. Um, I get to just kind of talk to you about community, and I'm really excited about that. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the community of friendship, and I just want to put this verse in your mind to start. It's John 15:15. 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. And it's true, Jesus does call us friends, and and here in this room, hopefully you're sitting next to or nearby friends or people that you would associate as, as friends. And there really isn't much more of a lonely experience or an existence than an existence without friendship, without people that we can go to and open up our, our, in our lives to. Um, I had an experience like that really uh, relatively recently um, within the past couple of years. What's interesting is that when you work for a church, when you decide to, to take a position at a church, you're not just leaving your job. You're not just um, you're not just leaving like a, a church or like something that you go to on a on a weekly basis. You're leaving a family. You're leaving a community. You're leaving friends. 
And doing that, for those of us who are in ministry where we're vocational and we get paid by a church, doing that is a, it's a tough thing because you don't really know quite what you're stepping into or really what's going to happen to your friendships that you're leaving behind. And so I was very, very excited to take this position here when I, when I first came over to Influence. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect with friendships. And uh, what I ended up finding out is kind of just the out of, out of sight, out of mind um, principle was applied. Where um, the relationships that I had, they remained somewhat intact, but my existence as a, as a person became awfully lonely. Um, there were some people here that I was able to connect with, but even those relationships kind of floated away to where there was a, uh, there was a season where I was really like the only young adult in this church. At least that's what it felt like. Um, and it was a very lonely time in terms of ministry and kind of just in terms of existence because I didn't really fit anywhere. And uh, what's so good about what we're doing here right now is we're eliminating that issue by saying, no, no, we're doing what we can as a church to make sure that you are supported and surrounded and loved on by people. Because what we're doing is we're finding the people that you fit in the same life stage as you. We're saying, hey, you might not have known this individual, but this is what we're doing. We're creating this community now that you can be a part of, where friendships are going to spring out of it, and you're going to feel the the love and the life that friendship brings you. Because if we are isolated, if we're in isolation, there's really, like I said, there's not really a deeper, lonely state of existence. Here's what ends up happening. When we feel lonely, there's this, uh, I talked a little bit about it last week, but there's this existential loneliness within each of us, right? This, this void, we need God to come in. We need, we need the Holy Spirit. When we're born, we're born with a place for him to reside in our soul. We need him, but because of original sin, we're born into the state of depravity where we don't have him with us. And there comes a point of faith, point of salvation, where then the Holy Spirit enters in and he inhabits us. And now it's not just me, it's not just I that exists, it's now I exist with the Holy Spirit. He is also now in me, he's in us. And, and it, that can be um, a very comforting experience. But when we still are operating outside of the existence of a community, outside of friendship, what can happen is that we can then project our loneliness onto the Lord. And what we'll find ourselves doing is saying, well, God, I don't have friends, and so clearly you don't care about me because you haven't brought me friends. Or maybe my family's out of state, and so clearly you don't care about me because my family's out of state. God, you must not be with me either. And we end up finding ourselves thinking that somehow the Holy Spirit left us at some point. That can lead to a lot of things. It can lead to dark nights. It can lead to depression. And what is so, so important, I believe, about the community of friendship is that it reminds the soul, it reminds us that no, I'm not alone. And that as we are here, as we're present for one another, maybe it's, maybe it's going and visiting being or being visited in the hospital when you're sick or the fact that your community would come around you and that they would visit your sick parents maybe in the hospital. When, when we have a community that reminds us, no, you're not alone, you're loved on by all these other people, it also, ultimately, it, it'll project onto God, we'll be reminded of, oh yeah, you're not you haven't left me, God. I'm not abandoned by you. Rather, you are just as present as, uh, as my friends are, as this church community is. And so we are so excited about offering you guys opportunities to get into community. If you're here in this church and you're not yet connected, we want to get you connected in a small group. <clears throat> Part of what um, you're going to be, be able to have the opportunity to do tonight on our break is uh, see Marion. And Marion, can you just raise your hand? This is Marion. Marion is helping out with small groups and a few other things at the church. You're going to want to find her. She's going to be at the table right over here to my left, your right. And if you are interested in signing up for small groups, we are getting started with those like now. Um, so you can sign up tonight f- to be a part of a, of a small group. But we also have uh, an opportunity for hosts. If you have a home that you would like to open up, maybe you have the gift of hospitality and you love just to love on people and to care for people and do that very thing I was just talking about, make sure that people feel like they're part of a group and part of a friendship, then uh, then please talk to us. But we just want to let you know that there are some responsibilities. There's a checklist of things that if you're looking to be a host, if you feel like the, the Spirit is prompting you to do that. Um, 
that we'll just need you to review that to make sure that, uh, that you can meet those criteria. You can pick that up over here as well. Awesome, my bad. Okay, did everybody hear that? In case you didn't, we're only taking host names tonight. If you want to sign up for a small group, you can do that on Sunday. Um, so we we want you to just start thinking about that. Start praying about that. Who who maybe could you find yourself identifying with? Things of that nature. But again, I want to come back to this verse, John fifteen five. No longer do I call you servants. Now it's not that we don't serve Jesus, right? Because that's what we continue to do. We are servants in His kingdom. What Jesus is is really getting here at in this in this scripture. He's just about to go to the cross. This is like this is his last kind of little message to his disciples. He's about to enter into a prayer for them, and then he's literally he, he'll be going to the cross just after this in John's gospel. And so he's not saying, "Hey, don't serve me anymore," or "Don't serve God anymore." And so he's he's re-identifying who these people are. They've been traveling with him for about three years. They've been following in his footsteps. He is their rabbi. And so literally as, as his disciples, what, the rab- what these disciples would have been doing is they would have been doing everything that Jesus was doing. It was like follow the leader, like a big game for three years of follow the leader. And so they were learning what it meant to carry the yoke of Christ. And so he, he changes things a little bit here. He says, no longer do I call you servants for a server. A servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. What an intimate experience. If we just sat there for a second, we started to think about all things. Jesus would say, I, I've received from the Father and all of those things that I've received from the Father I now share with you. That's an intimate experience. That's what Jesus would define as friendship. There's this sharing that's going on here and there's a sharing most specifically about the relationship with the Father. And so that's what we do in community here at church. At Influence Church, community looks like sharing in our faith together. Community looks like coming together and in friendship, we're going to be opening up our hearts to one another about what it is that the Lord's doing and where we're at. And guess what? Just like Christ said it was okay with the disciples when he called them, it doesn't matter where you're at, it doesn't matter if you're a fisherman, a tax collector, or something else. That's what we're going to do with one another as well. So as we come together in community, we get to welcome one another with wherever we're at in our spiritual growth and our spiritual development, no matter if we've been a believer for 20 years or for two or for two months or two weeks. We get to come together in community, love on one another, and share about our experiences, just like Jesus says here. I've made known all things to you that I've received from the Father. And that's what friendship looks like to Jesus. Let's pray. Christ, I thank you that you have called us friends, that you consider us your friends, that you, would, that you would open yourself to share the things of God with us, that you would allow us to enter into your relationship with the Father. And there's this sweet kind of adoption that you do in that, that we, we get to enter into something that's a mystery to us to an extent, but we get to enter into this very, very deep relationship that you have with God. And so, Christ, we thank you for calling us friends. And I just pray, God, your blessing over these small groups, over these community groups. And we thank you, Lord, that you are moving here in influence in such a capacity that we can even do that at this time. Thank you, Lord, for for community. Thank you for these small groups, God. We bless those ministries because we know that um, the the results of that is just going to be a deepening of love for you. And so, God, would you bless tonight as we learn more about what it means to be your disciple. Jesus, you are our rabbi. Just what we were talking about tonight is, once again, a game of follow the leader. We want to know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, teach us. Jesus, be our rabbi. We can't do this without you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Nathan. All right, how's everybody? Good? All right, we're going to, uh, let me ask you a question. What is God's supreme goal? Okay, let's try it one more time. What is God's supreme goal? All right, if you were not here last, uh, if you yeah, if you weren't here last week, you probably didn't get 
the diagram, so we'll get you a copy of that at break. But remember, what we want to do is we want to memorize that diagram because it's going to help you when you read your Bible. What you're going to do is you're going to think God's supreme goal is the establishment of His kingdom, not just in your life in this United States, not just on earth, but in the entire universe. So that when you start to read scriptures like in the Revelation, where it talks about worlds to come, an ever-expanding universe, you don't know what that means. I don't have a clue what that means other than it confirms that what science is telling us, that the universe is not static, but is constantly growing. It only makes sense to understand that God somehow, in his divine wisdom and plan, has a continuous, expansive view of the universe. And we know that about God because God, in the beginning, let's just assume that God finds himself in the velvet darkness of eternity and, and decides it's time to expand and speaks the world into existence. And so he has this expansive view of the universe, but guess what? Same thing with you. He created you without capacity for understanding who he is. Now think about that. You don't reach a point of capacity. You've peaked out. You've known all you can know about God. Imagine that you are like a black hole for spiritual life from God. And the way a black hole works, the gravity inside that black hole is greater than the gravity outside. So what it's literally doing, it's sucking everything into it in terms of particle. So what you want to be is like this spiritual, you know, high, high gravity kind of dimension for spiritual life and truth to where you're constantly just receiving all that God has for you, knowing that whenever God expands me, God can expand me more. There's a scripture that says, if the, dark, if the light that is within you becomes darkness, how great indeed is that darkness? Well, imagine this. What if the light within you becomes greater light? How great indeed is that light? That capacity for God, that capacity to understand the things of God. Well, tonight we're going to talk about baptism, communion, and the Holy Spirit. Just a small little um, offering for you. Uh, not much there, huh? Okay, let me talk to you about, uh, we're going to talk about baptism here first. Let me give you my experience with baptism. My parents were um, of the Methodist tradition, and as such, they did what every good Methodist parent did. They took their little, little baby to church, and they baptized that little baby, in front of the church, and they gave you a little certificate that said, you have now been baptized in the Methodist church. Now, I wouldn't have known about that had I not found the certificate or my mother had not told me that that event happened. So if you stop and think about it, why did they do that? Well, they did it because it was part of a religious tradition. They maybe even done it out of some sense of guilt or conviction or wanting to guide you know, their life or their child's life in the right direction. All noble cause. But it wasn't baptism. What it was was getting wet as an infant. And what we have to understand is, though some things seem noble and religious and ritualistic and even accepted by people, it doesn't make it biblical. And the convictions of Christians are not always Christian convictions. So because we as Christians have convictions about something does not make it necessarily biblical convictions or doctrine. So what we're trying to do is we're, not, we're going to try to, for a, for a moment as we study this, we're going to try to push out of our head a little bit the idea of what we understand about our religion or ritual and try to say, but what does the Bible say? So when you're discipling someone, remember there are four goals of biblical discipleship. The first one is to establish the believer in the Word of God. You want people to know what does the Bible have to say on that subject. Now they're going to bring in, just as you will bring in, your experience with religion, with ritual. But you always want to test that against the Word of God, not against what you think or feel or have experienced. 
Because when you do that, you get off the biblical road and you get onto this other road called experience or ritual or tradition. Now, some traditions are good. Some of them actually line up with Bible, but most of them do not. And it's amazing. It's the things that that happen to be religious or ritualistic, denominational, churchy, that typically people get the most offended about. They don't get offended about the Word of God because they probably don't know it. They get offended about, well, you can't, you know, that this is my, this is important to me. This is what we've always done. This is where we've always been. And rather than create an argument with someone, what you want to do is say, well, hey, that's, that sounds like a great thing. Let's, let's work through the Scriptures and see what we found out. So if you're discipling someone, you're taking this material, you're walking them through it, you never want to be in a position where you offend someone because of their religion, because people get easily offended with religion. What you want to do is say, wow, that was, that's quite an experience. Did I say anything with that? Wow, that's an interesting kind of look. See, I haven't affirmed, I haven't denied it. I've just kind of said, wow, let's look at that then. Let's take the Word of God and begin to plow through that and see what happens. Now, let me fast forward from when I'm a baby. All of a sudden, I find myself in college. And uh, I started reading this little book called The Late Great Planet Earth about the return of Christ. Scared me to death. Uh, I just felt like the devil was coming, the world was coming to end, and I needed to do something. I went out and I bought a Bible. I started reading the Bible, read it through the New Testament through four times the first month. Knew that if this was true, I was in trouble. Everything it said to not do, I would already done. I didn't know how to pray. I really did not know how to pray. The only prayer I could ever remember was that one that we scare kids with. Now lay me down to sleep. Now, what kid can ever sleep after if I do not wake? I mean, think about it. It's the worst prayer on planet Earth, is it not, for children? And parents kind of throw this ritual in there, you know. I think it's to scare them. If you do something bad while you sleep, you're going to die. All right? So, anyway, that was the only prayer I knew. So, I remember getting down on my knees, praying, God, God, I... I believe what I've been reading. I don't know what all this means, but I believe you died and you rose from the dead. And it was that day in April that I became a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I really didn't have this church experience, so my buddy, he was in the same situation. He'd done everything I'd done, so we went to church together. We kind of wandered in. This guy was preaching from the Word of God, something I had never heard before. And, I, and he, they gave this thing called an invitation at the end, and I didn't know what that was. I was sitting all the way at the back like a good visitor does. We went forward, and I went into a room, and some of you have heard this story before. I went into this little room. There were there counseling people, and the guy said, what happened? You know, why are you here? And I said, well, I came forward because Gary did. And that was really true. I really did. I thought, I'm not staying back here with all these people. I don't know who they are. And so he said, well, tell me what, what happened. I told him the story. I began to quote some scriptures. I'd already memorized some scriptures just from reading it four times. And I began to tell him what had happened to me. And he says, well, it sounds like you're born again. And I go, great, what's that? I didn't know terminology. Even though I'd read that word a few times in John's gospel, I didn't know what it meant really fully. But I had experienced it without knowing the terminology and the definition of it. And I'll never forget, here's what he said. I said, well, what do I do now? He says, show up tonight with an extra pair of underwear. You know, when someone says that to you in a church, every thought of cult goes through your brain. You know, and I, but you know, there was something in me that said, you know, if this is what it takes to follow Jesus, I'm showing up with an extra pair of underwear. I literally did not know I was going to get baptized that night. He never mentioned the word baptism to my memory. And they had an evening service. That's when they baptized. I showed up. I got a little brown bag, put my best pair of underwear in there. You know, I think I've got to show it to the church. I'm getting the good ones, right? And so I show up with this little bag, and I've got my, my little bag, my underwear, and I'm looking around, and I see another brown bagger over there. And I go over to this guy, and I go, hey, uh, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. He said, I went in this room. Same story. He said, I talked to this guy. He got all excited, said to show up tonight with an extra pair of underwear. And I said, what are we doing? He says, I don't know. So this was, this was kind of the way they worked in that church, right? And so uh, next thing I know, there's a bunch of us. They line us up. They take us up, and they, you know, that was when they had, a lot of churches had the baptistry up high, you know, the big fishbowl thing up there. And so they walk us up there, and as I'm walking by, I, I mean, I'm really clueless. I look, and I see this giant pool of water, and I see this opening when I can look out into the entire congregation, and my heart stopped. All I could think was this. I'm going to have to get in my underwear in that water in front of everybody. It's all I can imagine, right? 
to my relief, they gave us a gown. They baptized us. They never did tell us what happened, why it happened, and, uh, and it was okay because it was a transition into my understanding. It forced me to read. Now, it would have been better had I been somewhat prepared for the experience, but then again, I wouldn't have a great story. Okay, so here's what, what I want you to understand. What happened that day was I was baptized like this, okay? I'm standing in the water, and then they lay me down in the water like this, and they brought me up out of the water, and then in doing so, they quoted a scripture. We are buried with him by baptism into death. Picture of death laying down. That like as Christ was raised from the dead, so we walk in newness of life. You see, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you. Baptism doesn't wash sins off. The blood of Christ did that in forgiveness. Baptism is a statement and a testimony and act of obedience that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So when we are baptized, we're, not, we're baptized because we are saved, not to be saved. So when you start to, to walk through this, if you can use the illustration of just take, if you're discipling someone, just take a pencil or pen, hold it up, and just say, let me illustrate it. Just take your hand like we're buried with him by baptism into death, like Christ was raised from the dead, so we walk in newness of life. So what you want to do in discipling someone, what you want to do in your own understanding, understand what it is. Explain it in a very, very simple term, and then support that with the Word of God. So let's take a look at this. Um, If you go into your book to page 10, uh, is where baptism starts, and we see that why does God, why does God instruct us to be baptized? We see that it it was actually the example of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is baptizing, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up to be baptized of John. Not because Jesus was a sinner, but to show us by way of example. John, recognizing who he was, said, no, Lord, you need to baptize me. And he says, forbid it not, John, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So there's something in this baptism, this water baptism, that was critically important to the walking, this faith walk. So much so that when the Apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he looked out over that crowd, this, this coward for Christ at the end became a lion for Jesus Christ at Pentecost. He got up and he said, men of Israel, listen, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, and it says they were cut to their heart, and they said, what must we do? Peter said, be baptized every one of you. And it says that day there were 3,000 baptized. So critically tied into this whole thing is the idea that this is a testimony of faith. This is a testimony of belief. And as you know, we've kind of got a tradition now of baptizing a couple of times a year, and, and the big one is, is Easter Sunday. We baptized, uh, I think, 101 people uh, in three horse troughs, believe it or not. If, you're, if you weren't here, we had three horse troughs out there, and we were baptizing people as fast as we could, and all for the glory of God. And then we had another one, I think, in October. Uh, how many of you were baptized at Easter? Just raise your hand if you were baptized at Easter. How about in October? October, a few of you too, okay? And you might be saying, you know what, I don't know that I've ever done that. Well, you know, the opportunity is coming again on Easter Sunday morning. You could be baptized that day, but you also could be spreading the word if you have and say, hey, you know, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to testify of our faith. be great for you to come. It's a great opportunity to bring your friends and family too that don't know Christ because what they'll do is they'll show up to support you. Then they'll see it. Then you can explain it. And then they'll hear the gospel message. Isn't that powerful? And so when they would baptize, you know, uh, they didn't have like cool little baptistries up in the ceiling. You know, they didn't even have cool horse troughs back in the first century, right? What they had was they had open rivers, streams, and lakes. So they would take people down, and all of a sudden they'd start baptizing, and people are going, what's going on over there? They'd wander over, and they begin to share the faith. So remember, baptism is an opportunity for the sharing of your faith. 
Now, uh, what's the purpose of baptism? Well, if you kind of look down there, bottom of page 10, bottom of page 2, we've kind of covered that. It was to illustrate something that was going on, identifying with what God was up to. Now, remember on page 11, there's a, you see the arrow there, the gray arrow? Remember the key of the gray area. When you're discipling someone, always turn in that page, in that uh, study, rather, to the gray arrow. And you're going to read that first as you introduce the lesson for them, and you're going to read this. It is not essential for salvation. So everybody turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. If you have not memorized this verse, may I encourage you to do so? Not only for uh, the sharing of your faith with others, but also to, to shore up and to establish your own self in strong faith of, what, of how we come to faith in Christ. So let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By the way, while you're finding your place, it's really helpful if you are using the same translation as your pastor. Okay? It's even, it's, a, it's even more important if your disciple is using the same translation as you're using. Because when you process through information, when you start to read things and they read different or verses are omitted in some ways in some new translations, it becomes extremely confusing to your learner. So I want to encourage you. I use a new King James. I encourage everybody to use it. It's what we preach from, um, and it'll, it'll be valuable to you in your process. All of this book is set in the new King James. So when you read these texts, that's what it's going to be set in. Now, let's go to it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read from New King James. For by grace have you been saved through good works. Now, what's it say? For by grace you have been saved through what? It doesn't say through going to church. It doesn't say being baptized. It doesn't say growing up in a Christian home or a Christian nation. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Now look at this next part. And that not of yourselves. You don't get into heaven by being good. You don't get into heaven by being better than your neighbor. You get into heaven by grace through what? Faith. Not because of works. Now look why. Here's the reason. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So salvation is always about grace through faith, not because of works. In other words, works means things you do to earn God's favor. You cannot earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. You just have to receive it. So what if it was based on works and it took uh, five points to get into heaven, you could get a maximum of ten? Well, if you had seven points and your friend had six, you would have reason to boast. You'd say, well, it took five to get in. I not only hit the minimum, I went over two. Who gets the credit, you or Jesus? You get the credit because why? Because you had works. No, it's by grace through faith. When I receive that gift of God, I receive it. Now, what about works? What part do they play? Well, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So I do good works. I do things that Jesus tells because I am saved not to get saved. Make sense? For we are his workmanship. That little word workmanship there is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. Anybody ever tried to write a poem? You know, you probably tried and found it difficult. If you're good at it, you know how difficult it really is. So if you look up a definition for a poem, it's, a, uh, it's noted for lyrical beauty and structural perfection. It looks good and it sounds good. It has a rhyme to it. It has a rhythm to it that makes sense. To get to that point of having it sound good and look good, you have to write it and rewrite it. It's line upon line rewriting, right? And what happens is you're chiseling certain things away. Guess what? For you to be God's poem, what does he have to do? He reworks your life line upon line, working, rewriting it to where you're noted for lyrical beauty and structural perfection. In other words, you look right and you sound right. You 
look like the life of Jesus Christ living himself out in you. Okay, let's go on here. Uh, Baptism is a point of obedience. Do I need to be baptized to be saved? Yes or no? No. Okay, if I am saved, should I be baptized? Yes, because it's a point of obedience. So here's a good illustration. Some people, there are some denominations that teach if you're not baptized, you can't go to heaven. That's called baptismal regeneration. That means that the waters take away the sin. They're necessary for conversion. A great uh, illustration of, of, of a, a biblical character who that did not happen to. Remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And the one thief, what did he do? He reviled Jesus. What did the other one do? He said, Jesus, remember me what? When you go into your paradise, all right, or in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you know what, let's see if we can arrange a baptism, you know, before you, you, know, before you die on the cross. Why did he get to go? Well, you say, well, he was tied up, right? He couldn't do it. He was crucified. But you see, if it's required for the kingdom, then God violated his own kingdom standard. Now, the other thing you'll notice as you go through Scripture, and and I'm going to jump around a little bit in some of this study, so if I say something that's a little further in the study, you'll know it's okay. I'm just trying to, to communicate all this to you. The one thing you will notice in Scripture is that everyone who was baptized in the New Testament was baptized by immersion. Okay? Buried with him by baptism. So as Christ was right from the new. So, well, where did this idea of baptizing babies come from anyway? I mean, it, it's very convenient, by the way. You don't need a horse trough, just need a little bowl of water. You know, I mean, it really does, it's a convenient thing. Well, what happened was, if you go back far enough, you go back far enough, you'll find out that, that uh, even those early roots of Roman Catholic Church were baptizing by immersion. Not babies, but adults. And uh, on other occasions, they would, by convenience, they would sprinkle. But, but by and large, they were doing that. And then they created a doctrine of original sin that meant if I'm not baptized, I don't get to go to heaven. So they said, let's start baptizing babies. So because that pra- early practice was immersion, they were baptizing babies, and apparently they weren't great at it, and some babies were drowning, which, you know, brings a lot of headache on the children's department at the local church, right? I brought my baby for baptism, and he's gone. Okay, so what they did was they said, well, then we can't do that anymore. Let's sprinkle. So it came out of a, out of a, a, a biblical doctrine that, or a doctrine that did not exist in the Bible, and that is original sin that you die if you're not, forgive, if you're not cleansed from original sin. So babies aren't safe, and they're not saved. They need to be unless they're baptized. So a lot of the things that we find in religion or in ritual, they don't find their origin in Scripture. They find their origin in man. Now, if you think about it like this, we have there's basically two sources of authority that religion operates in. One is what the Bible says, and then one is what man says. And man can build up a lot of stuff, right, a lot of ideas of how it's supposed to be. And as they build up those things about how things are supposed to be, what they do is they, they, they convolute the Scripture, and then you're trying to minister to people, witness to people, who they have in their mind this idea of what is biblical Christianity. And you've got to overcome that before you can even get them to Bible sometimes. Have you found that to be true? Okay, for example, uh, one of the first people I baptized was a lady by the name of Maud Orcutt. How's that for a good name? Deep South, Louisiana, Maud Orcutt. Maud wanted to get baptized. She was uh, an older lady who had, who had a Christian conviction that she could never wear pants to church. Okay? Clearly, California has overcome that conviction. All right? So Maud had the conviction she could not wear pants to church. Undoubtedly, somewhere she heard a sermon from some preacher who said that women shouldn't look like men, and if you're wearing pants, you look like a man. I mean, who knows where this whole thing went, right? How that all came down. But that was her conviction. So we're going to baptize her. I tried to convince her to get into a robe. Now, we had in this little church in South Louisiana, we had a curtain. And the idea was we, it was really a, a quite 
quite the drama, okay? Because you would close the curtain, they would come down in there, and then at the right time when all things were made ready, the curtain would open, voila, here are two people standing, uh, levitating in water above the, the, the crowd, and you would baptize them. And it had a glass front on it so you could get a good view of the whole deal. Can you tell me, can you know where this is going? So Maud insisted on the dress. The curtain was closed, and all of a sudden that dress went like a parachute in the water. When she walked in, it just went straight out. Maud looked at me horrified. I was horrified, and I said, let's just start pushing it down. And we're, we're getting the dress wet. You know, we're trying to exercise a little discretion here. Now, what was it that motivated her? It was religion and ritual. It had nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Your job when you disciple people is to always push them back into the Word of God. If they challenge you, say, well, you know, wow, I didn't know that. Why don't we look at the Word of God and see what it has to say? Because goal number one is to establish the believer in the what? In the Word of God. If they're not established in the Word of God when you're discipling someone, how are they going to get that? I would venture to say many of you are not established well in the Word of God Maybe you are now, but maybe you weren't for the first many years of your life. Hopefully, what what this is going to do is this taking you through 10 basics of the Christian faith is going to help to establish you in the Word of God. As we establish in the Word of God, we go to goal number two, which is to establish the believer in fellowship with other believers. Can we say that together? To establish the believer in fellowship with other believers. If someone comes to faith in Christ and then they show up at church the next week, and they don't know anybody, and they sit all by themselves, how long does it take before they become discouraged? They've left their friends that liked them, hung out with them. Now they come to church, and they say, well, I'm going to heaven, but it feels like I'm going to hell. Really, I mean, that's true, isn't it? I'm going to heaven, but why does it feel so bad to be a Christian? Because there's nobody putting their arm around them, nobody teaching them, no one leading them in the Word of God. So goal number two is to establish a believer in the fellowship with other believers. What that means is if you meet somebody, they're new to church, you get their phone number, you call them the night before, and you say, hey, I'm going to be there at the 9 o'clock or the 1040 service. Why don't we sit together? That means that you say, hey, do you want to go grab some lunch? A bunch of us are going to lunch. You see, you, you've got to help people become a part of this family. You can't just, you know, kind of get in your holy huddle and expect them to thrive in the kingdom of God. Okay, I want to, I want to take you now to, just turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. By the way, I could write a whole book on funny baptism stories. There's something that's really classic about baptism that just makes it funny. I don't know what it is. It's not supposed to be funny, but, but it is. There's some great things. We'll tell those maybe periodically throughout this study. Um, Acts chapter 8, and I want you to uh, look with me, if you will. Uh, we're going to begin to, I'm in Romans 8. Hold on. Give me a minute. This is one of those passages of scriptures where you might find your Bible is deficient based on the translation, because it will omit certain scriptures from this passage. You may not even know that kind of thing exists, but it does. Now, verse 26. You got it? Everybody got it? Got your Bible open? Okay, when you take your Bible, let me just tell you, not only is it acceptable, it's encouraged to take notes in your Bible. Underline things. You know, there's some scriptures, the only way I can remember them is it's the green mark on the right-hand page. I go to the green mark on the right-hand page. Or I've bold, I've, in bold face, I've taken and gone over each of the letters. I've made it strong so I can see it and emphasize the right things. Okay, let's look at verse 26. Now, the angel, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Cadiz, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, here's a couple of things we note about this man. This man is in a very privileged position within this kingdom, but he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. So we can assume that he was going there. He was probably, even though Ethiopian extract, he was Jewish. He was a good man. He had a heart for God. He was going to worship. He was returning, sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. 
So, you know, I mean, that's a great thing about chariots. I mean, you can read the Bible and drive chariots. I mean, I don't recommend it when you're driving in your car, right? Okay, so he's reading. Now, look at this. He's reading the Word of God, and it says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, I want you to develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. You ever been in those situations you just say, I just think God wanted me to say something to someone. I just felt a little leading there. So that you don't come off super weird. You might introduce yourself and say, hey, I don't know why. I just had this feeling like maybe I was supposed to talk to you. Do you happen to be a, a believer or are you on a quest for God? Or, hey, I don't know, is, is there something going on that maybe I could pray with you about? That's a little bit softer than coming in too strong and going, hey, I was over there and I was in the trance in the spirit realm, and all of a sudden God just moved me. I looked at you. I knew that you were my destiny. Okay? So you got to kind of be a little bit cool, but there's no way to make this thing not seem a little bit weird if they're not Christians. But if your spirit is being led by his spirit, you're going to see some confirmation. Nothing great is ever accomplished without boldness. Nothing great is ever accomplished without boldness. Was this a bold move on, on, on his part, on Philip's part? I think so. Look what it says. The Spirit said to Philip, go near, overtake the chariot. Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you're reading? words is this connecting with you you know what the spirit of god does the spirit of god brings people together for a purpose there is something about um uh, divine connections among people there's sometimes you say i don't really know why you know we were i was led into your life you were led into my life but there's a reason for this there's a purpose in all of this uh that that led this me in this direction you may not ever know what it is exactly, but you know it's there. It may take a while, and you go, oh, now I see how these things have come together. Well, he brought him together, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, he said, how can I unless someone guides me? There's discipleship. There's evangelism. How am I going to understand Isaiah unless somebody who knows about Isaiah tells me about Isaiah? How am I going to make application unless somebody helps me make application? How am I going to get close to God unless somebody helps me get close to God? How can I? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him, and the place in the Scripture he was reading was this. It's Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, by the way. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In humiliation... Uh, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. So that's what he's reading, and he doesn't understand it. What does that mean? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? He's not seeing the Messiah. He's not seeing Jesus. He's not making connection here. And then Jesus, uh, or Philip, opened his mouth and beginning at that scripture, preached what? Jesus to him. Whenever you're talking to somebody, don't ever leave the conversation with inviting them to church. You've got to lead them toward the cross. You've got to lead them to Jesus because if they never show up at church, you haven't fulfilled the divine commission. We were never commissioned to invite people to church. It's a good thing to do. We should do it. That's not what our commission is. Our commission is to bring people to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, it, Jesus said, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Lift up Jesus. There's something powerful about the name of Jesus. You say, well, I, I talked to him about God. Not good enough. You see, Jesus defines the mission of God. Doesn't he? I came to seek and to save that which is lost. All that the Father gives me will come unto me. You see, there's, there's something about the name of Jesus. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved in the name of what? Jesus. If I say God, I get away with I get a lot of grace from people because almost everybody believes in some kind of God. 
But when you define Jesus down, now all of a sudden we've narrowed the field and we've said, no, it's about Jesus. So he preached unto him Jesus there. And then notice what happens. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, I can only assume that, the, that Philip must have talked about baptism. What brought him to this understanding of baptism? Why did that connect? Well, undoubtedly, there's more to the story here. Philip told more of the story. You've got to tell more of the story. Don't just tell a little piece of the story. Give them as much as you can. I love that passage in the book of Acts where Paul said, uh, all of Asia has heard the word of God. You got, I think it's chapter 19. Chapter 17, he says, and they turned the, the, are these the men that turned the world upside down? In Acts chapter 20, he said, I did not shrink to declare to you the whole purpose of God, and I am free from the blood of all men. Wow. Night and day I warned you about, Jesus, about the need to believe on Jesus Christ. You see, that's the heartbeat of the, of the New Testament is tell the story. Talk about Jesus. Lift up Jesus. And so it says, um, he's asking this question. Then look at verse 37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you believe what? If you believe in Jesus. Baptism is not for non-believers. Baptism is not for babies. We had uh, some friends, we actually had done their wedding, and uh, they wanted to go out to lunch and talk about baptizing their baby because they had come out of a Lutheran tradition, and that was, you know, just kind of, uh, wa- Lutheranism is watered-down Catholicism. You, you understand that? It's what it really is. It's kind of like we sprang off of Catholicism so we could become Lutherans. And many of the same rituals are part of the, are both organizations, Okay. Now, I'm not saying that our friend, you know, he's a believer. He's accepted Christ, and, and yet he's trying to juggle, you know, ritual and trying to juggle Bible. So we had to take some time. And I said, well, here's why we don't baptize babies. But here's what we do do. And so once you pray about it, talk to your wife about it, think about it, we never heard from him. So I assume that somewhere in some church that baby got baptized. Okay. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the great confession of the New Testament. That's a great confession. You ought to underline that in your Bible. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, we get an indication here that this was an immersion by they went down into the water. Now, when they came up out of the water... Hard to do in a sprinkle. The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found, you know, and on it goes. Okay. So there we have a biblical account of what does it take. Who, who gets baptized? Believers get baptized. What's the proper way of baptism? Okay. Baptism is by immersion. The word baptizo, can you all say that? Baptizo, now you all know one Greek word at least. Baptizo means to dip. To dip. So technically, John the Baptist was not John the Baptist. He was John the Dipper. All right? And so what they would do is it was used of taking, you know, when you heat up a a piece of steel and then you put it into water so as to temper it? That was the word. You baptized it. When you would take a piece of cloth and you would uh, uh, dunk it into dye, that's how it was used. So it was white. It goes into purple dye. It comes out completely purple. Okay? So the idea of baptism is to immerse it. So baptizo, so here's the decision. So why do they, why the translators, now watch this. This is a really interesting piece of it. Why the translators not just say to dip? Why did they use, they'd make an English word out of a Greek word. They, doesn't baptizo sound like baptism? So it's not a translated word. It's what we call a transliterated word. That's where you take a foreign word, you turn it into an English word. And so that's what they did. Did the same thing with apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word for the word apostle. It literally means one sent with a message. So when you read it, you have to understand. So baptism by its very use is, um, means to be baptized. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Um, and uh, 
and it illustrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, where should I get baptized? That you know, some churches say you only get baptized in the church. That's because the theology says that there's salvation in the church. See the difference? Everything that happens, you got to remember, everything that's happening is happening for a reason. Somebody came up with a reason why they did that. And and some things that we do that aren't directly Bible aren't necessarily bad. All right, is it bad that we have little communion crackers that taste like cardboard? It's not bad. It's not unbiblical, okay? It's convenient. It kind of works with society. Is it bad that we don't have the common cup? If we have the common cup, I want to go first. How about you? Right? They're not bad. They're only bad, you see, when they, when they obscure biblical truth. So sometimes we can do things that are, that are convenient, that kind of make it all work for us, and they don't obscure biblical truth. You always have to ask, does it obscure biblical truth? And then we have to reevaluate it and say, well, why do we do this, and could we make this different, and is there a way to maybe put more horsepower behind this so the biblical mandate stands strong, okay? Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, run through a couple more things here, then I'm going to just take a couple of questions, and then we're going to break, and we'll come back and we'll do communion, okay? So um, if you go to page 12, uh, what happens to unbaptized babies who die, Okay? You're going to get this question from people who believe that bab- babies need to be baptized. Let me ask a greater question. What about babies who are never born? Do they go to heaven? Okay. Now, if you say yes, which I say yes, you'd like to have a biblical reason for it, right? Okay. Modern science has done us a wonderful deed. It's showing us that there's a physical body at a very, very early age, right? I mean, you see these little pictures, and you go, oh, my gosh, that's amazing, you know, and look how little and all of that. 1 Corinthians 15, we won't go to the passage, but you can read the whole passage. be good for you. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Isn't that cool? If there's a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We shall see him as he is, and as he is, so shall we be also. There's a transformation that happens somehow in the spiritual realm that we don't fully, it's not been fully revealed. But it, here's what it has been revealed. If I have a physical body, I have a spiritual body. Secondly, somehow that new spiritual body resembles that spiritual body that Christ has when he returns. Women always want to know, what age will I be? Right? I mean, do I have to, I'd just soon die young if, you know, if i got to spend eternity with this, you know, this body, right? But you see, remember, everything is made new. Transformation. Your job when you're talking to people who have had an unfortunate experience like some of the ones we've referred to is to bring comfort, not to bring, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that it's, it's a shame that they didn't grow up and receive Jesus Christ. There is, there is this truth that's in Scripture that I am not accountable for sin until I understand that I am a sinner. So we can say little children, um, little children are safe, not saved, because they're not accountable for their sin, just like a person that is challenged mentally from childhood and never really can comprehend the concept of, of, of sin, the consequences thereof, forgiveness, and redemption. Um, while I'm on this, people will uh, often say, you know, well, can you do the funeral because, you know, my father, my friend, my whoever, you know, they weren't Christians, and I know that they're going to go to hell, and, and I know that this message isn't for them. And let me just give you a little pastoral counsel here. Here's what I always say. I say, first of all, no one knows, no one knows the eternal destiny of anyone except God. So do not assume you know. Secondly, no one knows what was going on in that person's heart and mind in the last five seconds before they passed. 
Third, we don't know what God was saying, what God was doing in that heart, how God cultivated all that was poured in that they seemingly rejected. And here's ultimately the, the, the right answer. A good and a just God will always do what is good and just. So we entrust your friend, your family member, to a good God who always does what is right. And whether they publicly received Christ when you were there or whether they were baptized or not, you're not in the position to make a determination of their eternal destiny. That is one of the most comforting things you will ever say to someone. And a lot of times you'll find as you're doing, remember, this is school of ministry, so it's not just trying to learn a book. It's also trying to learn how do I minister more effectively to people? And how do I, how do I bring comfort and how do I bring uh, biblical foundations without offending and blowing people up along the process? Because I think we've all known those people that just blew people up, right? They just blew them up. They just made everybody hurt or cry or mad or whatever they did, and they didn't have to. They could have built a bridge. You, in ministry, you're building bridges to people. You're trying to help them to understand the love of God and the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, hey, let's take a break, and we'll come back together in a few minutes. Oh, I was going to have questions. Any questions? I'm sorry. Yeah, Dan. The Ethiopian. Well, remember, he was, he was a part of the, of the court of the queen. So to have a scroll, great observation, to have a scroll, he would have been, undoubtedly, it would have been probably the property of that court, or he would have been probably pretty well taken care of in that, as a member of that court and could have afforded one. But yes, it would be extremely rare for someone to have a scroll outside of uh, a synagogue. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Any other questions before we go? Before we break? Yeah, it would have been by observation. Yeah, something's going on here. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that if he had that conversation, it's not recorded. What's recorded is what was essential. What was essential. Okay.